I really love that term of differently able versus disabled because it's not, I've never been ready to see it as a disability because we literally do the same thing that everyone else does. We may have one or few less senses, you know, out of all the five senses, but we literally can do as many of the many things that anyone else can do. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Sakira Nayar, a visual creative storyteller and podcaster, a deaf-blind childhood cancer survivor, and an author. Welcome, Sakira. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. So for... Listeners who may not know the term deafblind, um, because I admit that I had not heard that before, um, can you explain what that means? Deafblind is basically the legal terminology for you have a certain level of hearing loss and you also have a certain level of vision loss. So together you have a dual sensory loss, and that's what I have. Even though for me I have 20-20 vision in one eye, no vision in the other eye, and a mild hearing loss legally. I am considered deafblind, but there are also others who have uh, more hearing, less, and, you know, less vision, and still considered deafblind. So it's kind of a legal term of how much can you see, how much can you hear, how much can you not see, how much can you not hear. And that comes into play for um, licenses, or why, why does it need to be legal? Is it for help with the government agencies, or why does it have to qualify I believe that initially came about through, yes, agencies as far as how you would be qualified for um, financial benefits as well as insurance or even educational purposes. So once they know that you do have dual sensory impairments, then they kind of labeled it as deafblind because the word deaf came about, you know, in the early 1800s and then the word blind came about in the early 1800s so eventually they just found a way to combine it once they learned about people like Helen Keller who have both deafness and blindness. Right and do you how do you personally feel about the term? For a while I didn't really want to use it but there has been an author who recently she's actually a lawyer first but she recently became a best-selling author and she goes by the name of Haven Gurmer, and she actually defined herself as the deafblind lawyer who conquered Harvard. And just reading her book, it was just like, you know what, I should not have any shame in saying that. Um, because, But ironically, most people, if they look at me, if they interact with me on a day-to-day basis, they may not even see it, they may not even know it, but I feel like it's a good opener or introduction, like, hi, I am deafblind, so if I cannot hear you, I'm not ignoring you. If I did not see you, I'm not, you know, completely blind either. Right. So in a way, would you say you're sort of taking the term back for yourself? Yes. Yeah. So it can be a term that defines you with empowerment rather than embarrassment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and here in Seattle, I think we mentioned, I'd mentioned to you in my earlier conversation with you that we would, we, we, well, a lot of people I know talk about being differently abled, which is a way to kind of, you know, talk about differences between people without a value assigned to them. And I don't know if that's something that you come 
you come into that comes into play where you live? Do, do you ever hear people discussing differently abled? Absolutely. And I really love that term of differently abled versus disabled because it's not, I've never been raised to see it as a disability because we literally do the same thing that everyone else does. We may have one or few less senses, you know, out of all the five senses, but we literally can do as many of the many things that anyone else can do. For example, one of my first trips out of the country was with an organization called Global Explorers and the man was deaf blind, deaf and blind, but he was still climbing rock, climbing Mount Everest, climbing uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. He was a hiker by heart, but he didn't let his disability, he didn't let his different abilities hinder him. So I prefer the word different because even though we are different because we don't see as well as others, we may not hear as well as others, and our other senses may not work as well as others, doesn't mean we are not able Right, exactly. And I think I've really come to understand that myself. I think when you grow up, um, you know, I'm, I'm a generation X person and I definitely grew up with this feeling about people who had differences that I should feel like I have an advantage. But I feel like these days, hopefully my children are growing up in an environment where everyone is just a variation of a theme, right? And we're all just a little bit different and there's not like a value system in place, you know, hopefully. Um, so you were uh, a baby when your, was it your family or a doctor discovered that you had non-hereditary bilateral retinoblastoma? Well, the story of that is my mom first took a picture of me. So just like any mom with a newborn baby, she loved taking pictures of me. One day when I was about three months old, there was, well, before she took a photo, she actually took a photo to prove it. But at one point, the light was shining in my eye. We lived in Florida, it's bright and sunny. The light was shining in my eye. She thought she saw something white through my eye pupils. Then she saw it again and was able to take a picture of it. And this is after going to more than one doctor and to receive an official diagnosis. This white glow that was in my right eye was what de- determined the retinoblastoma, which is the eye of the cancer, the cancer of the eye. And that is what really helped to confirm the diagnosis and allow for surgery to be done in time before the cancer spread to my brain or my other eye or even caused death. So had that been the very first symptom then? Say it again? Was that the first symptom, the the whiteness in the eye, or was there any other symptom? Well, according to my mother, she said that she saw some mucus build in the same eye, this right eye, before I was even three months old. So that was maybe one of the first symptoms that she saw to observe that my vision was not, as I was learning to, you know, navigate around, I wasn't as quick to navigate. Maybe I was still running into things as I learned to crawl. So she observed, you know, my vision was not as accurate, I would say, before she saw that white glow. I remember listening in, in the podcast episode where you talk about that. She talks about you, in, in your own words, you read about your being a baby and very small and her noticing something in that eye. So that may have been a connection, right? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And for those who don't know that I do have a podcast, I did have an, an episode to kind of highlighting a little bit about the initial diagnosis of retinoblastoma and just, you know, 
kind of sort of living life as a child with it. So what are your memories? Uh, this was very, you were very young when this happened. So can you just talk a little bit about what the procedure was and then what it was like to be a young child growing up without that eye? Well, what's so ironic about this is I am, uh, we'll probably talk about this in a minute, but I am actually releasing a memoir called Seeing Life Through Different Lens. And it's actually kind of co-authored with my mom and myself because ironically, I don't know if it can be labeled as PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, but I do not remember anything before that. I do not remember the surgery. I do not remember, you know, how it first felt once my eye was surgically removed and just getting used to just operating with one eye. My mom was able to share that perspective. So thankfully, I do have those experiences from the parental perspective. But the first memories that I have are really, you know, once I was in school, that was the first time I really knew that I was different, that I really realized that it's not normal to have one eye. But my mom did observe that after the surgery, which it took about five hours for a surgery, then I was in the healing and recovery and then having the radiation treatment. That was about a week. And so for that, it was a bit of an adjustment for her. At least she, she too was saying I had to be in a very dark environment, could not get used to light. I had to be in, in the hospital with no lights, not go outside just so that my eyes would not be prone to sensitivity of light, not just the sunlight, not even the fluorescent light bulbs. So it just took a minute for, also for my mother to readjust as to being a parent to um, a daughter with monocular vision versus vision in two eyes, because that too is a matter of navigating, navigating life again. Of course, knowing my way around the house and even before we're, stepping outside into the public of going to the grocery store, just having car rides, going to more hospitals, things of that sort. So it definitely was an adjustment for my mother. As far as far as me, I feel like the adjustment did not come until once I began school and preschool and kindergarten. And you were how old when the surgery occurred? Say it again. How old were you when you had the surgery? The surgery, I was... Nine months old. The official diagnosis was six months. The surgery was nine months old. And how does your mom remember being your mom at this time? What was it like for her? Well, my mom would say that she did a lot of journal writing. So she did a lot of expressing the feeling because I wasn't her first child. I was her second child. So it was definitely a different experience, maybe slight comparison, but also with a fresh mind of my my second my second daughter is completely different from my first daughter. I have to learn all over again how to cater to her needs, to figure out what she needs, because of course I was too young to even fully communicate what I needed aside from my various cries. So it was just a matter of learning a new language all over again for her. Yeah. And is your hearing loss associated with that surgery at all? Or is there a different source of your hearing loss? The hearing loss actually came later on as a result of the radiation. So I have a mild hearing loss and we're hearing aids in both ears to this day. So according to our memory, I first began wearing hearing aids officially 
at the start of school because every school year you're allowed to have a hearing test. And so my first hearing test is when I first started preschool, kindergarten, so I was about three years old when I first started wearing hearing aids. Mm-hmm. How did you feel in school as you got older? Did you, did you feel like you fit in? I have never felt like that I fit in. I think that was the hardest part, at least for me, about navigating friendships, relationships, school, uh, even coworkers. I've never felt like that I fit in. And I don't even think it's solely just because I do have vision in one eye or I do wear hearing aids in both ears. It's just I have my personality is is just unique in that way, not only being a December baby, but my personality is just so unique and so bubbly and so positive uh, beyond, I feel like, at least growing up, beyond people's expectations and comprehensions. So wait, you said uh, beyond being a December baby. I'm not sure I understand what December baby is like. So December babies are very spontaneous and adventurous, and love to try new things. So that comes in with my character as far as, like, not not even my different abilities coming into play, but just my character itself of being a December baby, or I like to follow the astrology of being a Sagittarian. And most of them are just very, just love to try new things and go new places and just always just love, can never stay still. <laughs> ah, and so is that how you ended up, uh, carrying out your life as you became uh like into your early 20s like how did that play out for you um personally this need to to move around and stuff I feel like my mom helped a lot as far as just making sure that I can do anything that I set my mind to so if I wanted to just become a photographer even after she gave me a camera when I was five years old and I just started taking those with me because my parents also love to travel. And so I was, they instilled that love of travel for me at a very young age. So even as I got older, I continued to enjoy traveling. And I continued to enjoy photographing. And then my mother also would listen to a lot of music and when I was in her womb. And of course, as I was younger, so my love for music it continued to blossom. So I just feel like I want to attribute it to my mother of introducing me to a variety of different things when I was younger, which kind of shaped me into the spontaneous and adventurous and even business person that I am today. It sounds like your mom, from what you're describing, never let your earlier surgery and experience with cancer affect what she thought you could do. Absolutely. And I definitely applaud her for that because I don't recall ever there were there is a section in our book where she actually addresses the fact that I was about seven years old before I even asked, have I always been this way? So it had been so long, probably not until I started going to school that I really realized, wait a minute, what happened before this? Have I always been this way? So it, because I was never shown pictures or because it was never talked about on a regular basis, my mom always talked about the positive stories. So she always would share the fun stories of whenever we were on the road trip and I would experience my first snow, see my first farm animal, things of that sort. But she always talked about the positive more than the negatives, I would say. Yeah, and you when you say... At seven years old, you asked or thought about, have I always been this way? 
what was your understanding of what this way was? What were you referring to? This way would definitely be referring to always having one eye, one eye that I could see and one eye that was actually real because uh, most people would not be able to tell, but in my photographs and my headshots, uh, if you see me on social media, my right eye is actually a prosthetic or a glass eye. So I've always just thought that I, I was born with one eye. And and does it do you have any trouble navigating the the glass eye at this point? Is it something you can just kind of forget about? At this point, yes. I even feel like once I even began high school or even finished out middle school, I always forget about the fact that I have one eye, but not until someone who is not familiar with it reminds me or asks me. Because sometimes, depending on the seasonal changes, sometimes I glass eyes get a little mucusy sometimes they get a little dry and it becomes a little visible to others so of course I wouldn't notice it until others would notice and say what's wrong with your eye and you're aside from those earlier challenges you're a, a healthy woman right right so what are some of the places that you've traveled because I know um you've mentioned that you do uh, photography and on your website you talk about having visited many many different countries so is traveling still really important to you traveling is very much a huge part of my life and I love to just kind of talk about my travels in order because I do feel blessed to be able to say and also be able to see all the beautiful places around as well so as I mentioned earlier my very first out-of-country travel were to Costa Rica. Before that, I've always gone on road trips up and down the East Coast with my mom and my dad because my mom is from New York. My dad is from Chattanooga, Tennessee, but we have family all over in various states in the East Coast. So every spring and summer break, I feel like I've been to almost every state on the East Coast. Uh And my dad was also a CDL truck driver. So before I started school I would be going with him on various trips I don't always remember all of them but he said <laughs> I've visited more states than I can recall <laughs> that's really cute yes and then after that was I got to do a two-week people-to-people student ambassador trip to the UK or uh, England France and Italy so that was about two weeks during the summer when I was a sophomore in high school and then by the time I was a senior in high school I got to go on another trip with Operation Crossroads Africa, which is basically the Peace Corps before the Peace Corps. And so that allowed me the opportunity to spend two months in Ghana, West Africa. And then after that, I just really enjoyed going to more African countries. So I went to Senegal, I went to the Gambia, which is actually where I met my husband. Then I also went to South Africa. And then I even went to Jamaica for a weekend, a weekend on a whim with my close girlfriend from high school. You you make that a priority to travel? I do make it a priority to travel because it doesn't leave me that I'm still alive, that I'm still with at least 20-20 vision in one eye to be able to see all the beauty there is around the world because every country is very different. Even though there are many similarities, there are many different cultures around the world. And it's very important to me to not only just feed that adventurous spirit in me, but also see the world that is there while I still can. And your positivity has also kind of become what your business is because you're also a bit a strategist, right, for small business owners? Yes. 
So one of the things that I believe makes me unique as a brand cultivating strategist is the fact that I can encourage people to not be afraid to step outside of their comfort zone and not be afraid to truly live authentically, both online and offline. And so what kind of projects do you especially like to take on? I have a huge love for music. I still very much love music. So anytime I get to work with any other creatives, any other music artists, those are the most exciting because I love to see the excitement and the passion light up either in their eyes or even in their voices when we're trying to strategize of how to get their passion project out there, their music, their art, whatever it is. I love to work with other creatives um, because I too am a creative by heart. So even though in the business aspect, if I could create content all day long, so I have to outsource when it comes to the sell and the analytical part. So those are my, my favorite clients. And what is, can you talk a little bit about this new book that you have just published? So my book, Seeing Life Through Different Lens, is basically a memoir that shines a light on surviving or thriving, as we say, with childhood eye cancer. So it is just about co-authored with my mom, and we kind of take turns sharing perspective. She shared the parental perspective, which actually originated from a blog that she started in 2015 and ran it for about two years. And then I, too, started a blog sharing my perspective of being a business owner, of traveling. And we kind of combined that together into a book that could shine a light on just being able to overcome adversity with resilience. So she, my mom touches on the surgery and then touches on life after the surgery and then just touches on her feelings as a mother of a childhood eye cancer survivor. And then all of the many resources and research that she did to ensure that I had the best education and the best experiences possible. And I share how those experiences have shaped me into the woman that I am today. Because the statistics now, at least for my cancer, retinoblastoma, the survival rate now is 95%. But back when I was first diagnosed, most children do not live to be past five years old if they do not get the proper diagnosis. So it's also a matter of just shining a light for those parents who have children who are young now, and they may be going through the same motions that my mom went through of the initial diagnosis, the surgery, and I share um, the end result of, hey, it would be okay. Right, because most of it is in the diagnosis. If it's caught early enough, it's very treatable, is what you're saying? Nowadays, yes. Thank goodness for technology, it is treatable. It's not 100% cured as of yet, but it's very treatable. There is a way to keep make sure it's monitored and to make sure that the tumor do not spread elsewhere. But of course, there are always going to be a result of secondary cancer. No matter how well the treatment goes, there's always going to be secondary cancer. So there's always going to be a need for making sure that you're still in remission, if not every three months, every six months, then annually. Is that the case for you too? Yes, I still very much see a handful of specialists just to make sure everything looks good um, on an annual and biannual basis. So I see an oncologist and then the op- ophthalmologist. And then, of course, I have 
my secondary specialists as well, my audiologists. So a lot of many doctors are part of my team to ensure that I was able to be here today and have this podcast interview. Yeah. So a lot of people who go through illness or chronic disease as a child um, have to see a battery of doctors and get a whole bunch of tests and are always in this sort of healthcare uh, framework. And I wonder if you've met people who've undergone that type of experience, whose outlook is very different from what your outlook is. Every retinoblastoma cancer survivor that I've met have always had a very different lifestyle, have also had a very different um, cancer diagnosis. So even though they, we may have the same cancer, we may have both had surgery at the same age, um, maybe the education was different, maybe the lifestyle was slightly different, or maybe just the type of treatment after the surgery was different. So say, for example, if I got radiation, someone else could have gotten chemotherapy and another person could have gotten cryotherapy. So it all varies as far as also the symptoms that you, they could possibly later on get in life. But as long as there's, they too have, you know, the team especially at the team, whether, whether you were in school, middle school, high school, elementary school, you have the team of IEPs and special education teachers who were there and good people to help make sure that you have the best education possible and to also ensure that you have field trips to have the best experiences possible as well. So every everyone varies, but there's that unique thread of all the same things that we go through both emotionally, mentally, and even physically because sometimes it's just like any other cancer survivor. It can be draining on a day-to-day basis. Is it hard at all for you to stay positive? Sometimes, but most of the time, no. Thank goodness for having a supportive family and supportive community. And also, of course, as I've gotten older, just learning what my love language is. So if I know that my love language is words of affirmation, just knowing that if I need to just ask mom and daddy, what do you love about me the most? And that will make my day. Or just having quality time with, you know, my family members and my close friends. So just knowing what my love language is, knowing what my triggers are to help me stay on the positive track. And have you been around people who are patients or survivors who seem to have a hard time staying positive? I definitely encourage them sometimes simply by sharing my story. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but simply by either my mom and I just sharing our stories of, of how we've got so far. And then, of course, just sharing our tips of medication and, I'm sorry, meditation and self-care uh, of what works for us. And then, you know, it's always, you can always help people as much as they want to be helped. So we strive to do that as far as just continuing to also educate people because sometimes people, these same survivors have family members who literally have no idea, no understanding about the cancer and its effects. It sounds like your mom and you have a very close bond. Thankfully, yes, we do. <laughs> and are you equally as close with your sibling? Yes and no. We, I have what most would consider half-sibling. So they are literally half my age. I am the youngest of three. And so everyone, by the time I was born, was either in college, finishing up high school, living their adulthood life. So I got to spend time with them, but also didn't get to spend time with them because as we all get to be adults, we see how busy life becomes. But for the most part, 
I am in, in touch with them on a regular basis. And your father, is he still alive? My father is very much so, still around. He was also around throughout the whole process. He was just, what I would say, in the shadows of it all, but he was there because he was the provider. He was also the emotional support. So he's very much around, and my mom joked that I am my father's daughter because we have so many similar personality traits. It's very funny how that happened. So, um, Zakira, what would you tell people who have been struggling with their health or their frame of mind about disability? And what would you tell people who want to support family and loved ones who are going through those struggles? Well, one thing that I always understood growing up is that knowledge is power. So you have the whole wide web at your fingertips, literally. You can either Google um, the cancer itself, retinoblastoma. You can Google, how can I help my uh, cancer surviving family member? Um, you can also look at YouTube for more uh, visual information of about the cancer, about any cancer, about childhood cancer especially. So I, my first tip is if you can just read or watch something or listen to podcasts to educate yourself more on the medical topics uh, that most cancer survivors go through. And second, most importantly, just definitely if you are going through it, if, if you're the family member, the parent, the spouse, whatever it is of someone going through any type of cancer, really, just find way to be of a support or find your own community as well because there are communities of family members of those with certain cancers. And I find it very fulfilling to be able to be in Facebook group with other retinoblastoma cancer survivors because there's so many things that we go through that are similar that only we understand. Not no offense to those who are, love us and take care of us, but there's something very similar about those to all go through the same experiences. But I definitely encourage you to find a community and educate yourself on the topic. So definitely search start with American Cancer Society. They just about have all the all the cancer topics on there. Most of the time, retinoblastoma is left out of a lot of cancer support networks. But thank goodness for Stand Up to Cancer and Sloan Kettering and all the most popular places in New York, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, most hospitals now are familiar with a lot of the childhood cancers. So just learning up would be great. Yep. And also I really I really got a lot out of what you said about knowing what your love language is and knowing what you need and then I guess what you're saying is ask for it. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. Of course, if we were so used to uh not if we're so used to either not depending on people or depending on people, sometimes it's hard for us ourselves as a survivor to ask for help. But yes, it's also a matter of just if you know us a lot and you know what our love language is, if you know that we really enjoy hugging you, if you know that we really enjoy just simply spending time in quiet with you or just telling us that you love us or even just helping us around the house to do things for us that are normally difficult for us to do. Those are the top five love languages so just kind of getting a feel for or even simply asking what can I do to help you yeah that's very helpful so talk a little bit about your podcast please and then also maybe share a little bit about where listeners can learn more about you and where to find your book and all that good stuff perfect okay so my podcast 
is called Living Legacy Podcast. I don't know why, but I've been feeling like a shift. I might change the name. I don't know. But the theme of it right now, it's almost going into season three, and it's been about women of purpose sharing stories of resilience. So most of the time I interview business owners, a lot of times their parents, and sometimes they are just successful single women or even my mom and my dad. <laughs> and basically, it's just a matter of sharing stories of anyone who's overcoming adversity with resilience, which kind of aligned with the story behind my book as well. So originally, I wanted to launch the podcast to shine a positive light on the music industry and the creative behind the scene because they don't always get a lot of credit because there's a lot of people and a lot of hands that go into those popular songs and music videos that you love so much. But then I realized not many people do know my story. They don't understand what Retina Blackstone was all about. They don't they don't know how I've made it so far. So then I started to use that as a platform to share my story. And then I would come across and align with people who have very similar stories of survival, not just of cancers. And that's how that came about. So that's ended up being what people really like the most. So I'm approaching season three as of 2020, and it's very been amazing, an amazing journey. And then if you also go to my website, which is my first name and my middle name, com. that's where you can find out more about the podcast. You can listen to podcast episodes there for free. You can also find out more about my services if you are interested in starting your business, your side hustle, or you have it and you just really don't have the time to manage it. And then, of course, my book. You can find out how to get signed autographed copies of it. And it's officially coming out December 2019, so definitely by the end of December. And find out how to get autographed copies or even the digital version. And I am also on social media everywhere at Illuminous One, which is Arabic for my middle name, Nayar. So that's at I-L-L-U-M-I-N-O-U-S-O-N-E, everywhere on social media. That's great. So you have you're, you have a lot of different projects where people can find you and learn more about you and even work with you. Absolutely. I love to be open. I love to be out there. I love to be authentic. So I try to be as accessible as possible. Yeah, I feel like you have a lot of energy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I... I'm really happy that you had time to talk about your projects and about your your own story. And is there anything else you want to share or do you feel like we've covered it? I feel like we've covered it. I just thank yeah. you again for having me. I'm glad it worked out. So thank you so much for being my guest, Akira. It was really fun to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more information on this episode, photos, community discussion, and other episodes, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.